0: Listeners, thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier. It's Friday, December 30th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at the weather forecast for today. This comes from KCRG and Cedar Rapids. Plan on a pretty nice Friday overall. While it'll be much cooler compared to yesterday, it's right around average for late December with highs in the 30s. The wind should remain light as well. Looking ahead to our holiday weekend, a small system is being watched for tomorrow night. At this time, impacts look very low, mainly due to temperatures being above freezing. But it's feasible that a light wintry mix in a few spots may cause a few slick roads. Otherwise, the next system that impacts most of us is still on track to hit on Monday and Tuesday, with mainly a cold rain here. Look for highs into the 40s on those days. Now, the front page of The Courier has these articles. Reporter Describes Top Stories of the Year. The Cat Whisperer. Kramer's Sausage Closing After 59 Years. And we begin reading, Iowa Fans Head to Nashville. And we have a publisher's note. It says The Courier will not publish on Monday. There will be no print edition of The Courier on Monday, January 2nd to allow our employees to spend New Year's Day with their families. There will be a Sunday, January 1st paper. We wish all of our readers a Happy New Year. Now we have the top story. Iowa fans head to Nashville. Music City Bowl sparks interest of Iowa faithful. And the story begins with a photograph of Iowa fans reacting after a touchdown against Penn State during their game at Kinnick Stadium on Saturday, October 9, 2021, in Iowa City. Dateline, Waterloo. Iowa is ready to take on Kentucky at Saturday's Music City Bowl, and thousands of Hawkeye faithful will be in Nashville, Tennessee, to see the game in person. According to Elizabeth Homer, the Athletic Development Events Director for the University of Iowa Center for Advancements, fans are eager to go and Nashville was a top choice for a venue. Quote, there's been a lot of excitement around Nashville and the Music City Bowl, Hallmer said. Fans are certainly hoping this will be one of the locations that we would be at for weather and distance. People being able to drive to Nashville, the excitement of the city of Nashville. So we've gotten a pretty positive response from alumni, fans, and supporters about the Music City Bowl, unquote. There currently are 800 people registered to go to the Hawkeye huddle pregame pep rally on Friday night at the sky deck at Assembly Food Hall. The party will run from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, and while registration is encouraged, Hallman says all comers are welcome. Last year, Wildcats came out on top 20 to 17 against the Hawkeyes in the Citrus Bowl. This year, Iowa fans are ready for revenge and are going south to see it in person. Quote, pure excitement, Hallmer said of Iowa's morale. We are ready to get the payback. We are going to take it this year, Unquote. While their numbers may not be as large as previous years, Waterloo and Cedar Falls will be represented among the fans in black and gold. At Humble Travel Agency in Cedar Falls, owner Craig Humble said the interest has been modest compared to when Iowa played in larger bowl games. Quote, There's been a lot smaller interest in this bowl game compared to years past, when we've been dealing with, like, say, a Rose Bowl, an Orange Bowl, or something like that Iowa might get invited to, Humble said. However, he's seen some interest. When Humble looked at availability for flights to Nashville, they were full. While he can't say how many of those bookings are Iowa fans or Kentucky fans, the inquiries he's received indicate some local interest. Some have asked what kind of travel packages are available for the game. In the event of a larger bowl, he explained, there are often chartered flight packages offered. With a smaller game, agencies don't usually go all out. Still, he thinks the trip would be worthwhile. Quote, I think it would be a fun game to attend because it's right on New Year's Eve and the game's going to be on ABC, so there's fairly big networks picking it up, and so it should be a lot of fun for the fans too, he said. Our next story was written by Jeff Reinitz, and the title is The Cat Whisperer, Cat Rescued from Storm Drain in Downtown Cedar Falls, and it opens with a photograph of Officer Marissa Abbott with the Cedar Falls Police Department, and she rescued Oliver from a downtown storm drain on Tuesday, December twenty seventh, 2022. Dateline Cedar Falls. A cat is getting back on its feet after surviving four days in a frozen storm drain in downtown Cedar Falls. Officer Marissa Abbott, with the Cedar Falls Police Department, rescued the cat, a five- or six-year-old male named Oliver, on Tuesday night. By climbing into the slush field drain. And here we have another photograph of the police officer inside of that drain rescuing the cat. Quote, a lot of times people don't go that extra mile for a cat, said Christy Gardner, director of the Cedar Bend Humane Society, which is now trying to locate Oliver's owner. A shopper reported seeing the cat in the drain behind the Pump House Bar and Grill on Main Street on Tuesday night. When Abbott and Animal Control Officer Ryan Doland, arrived around 7 p.m., they couldn't see the cat, which had crawled deep into a pipe. Quote, we could hear it meowing, but we couldn't see it, Dolan said. He noticed food had been left in the drain, a sign someone knew about the cat and had been feeding him. Abbott volunteered to descend into the main drain chamber, but the cat was deeper down a pipe that was too small to enter said Lt. John Gerzema with the police department. Dolland estimates Oliver was at least 10 feet down the pipe. Abbott began to coach the kitty to coming closer. Quote, Somehow she was able to cat-whisper it out, Dolland said. She lifted Oliver to safety, and Dolland brought him to the Humane Society. Gardner believes Oliver had been in the storm sewer for some time. Quote, he was very emaciated, he was skin and bones, she said. He also had frosty eyes, a ear infection, and bruising on the tips of his ears, which she suspects is from frostbite. She believes Oliver was likely in the drain during the blizzard and sub-zero cold snap last week. If not for the rescue, she said, Oliver may not have survived much longer on his own. Gardner said the cat is now eating well, has a healthy heart and lungs, and is likely to fully recover. Oliver did have a microchip, that's how they know his name, but the contact information for the owner turned out to be a dead end. The chip shows Oliver is from another state, and the phone number of the chip now belongs to someone else. Gardner said this is common when owners pass their pets to someone else or don't update their contact information on the chips. Cedar Bend workers posted Oliver's information on Iowa Pet Alert and are waiting to see if anyone comes forward to claim him. If no one steps forward in the next 10 days, he will likely be put up for adoption, she said. Cedar Bend is accepting donations to cover Oliver's medical care, food, and accommodations until he can find a home. Next, we have a story written by Andy Malone, and it's his reflections on a year of reporting on Cedar Falls in Waverly. It begins with a photograph, Of police officers being sworn in by Mayor Jim Brown prior to Monday's City Council meeting. A reporter's creed is often reflected in the stories he or she writes during a given year. I let the facts speak for themselves while informing people, but continued to reinforce in 2022 my belief that it's not my job to just transcribe government officials' discussions and decisions at public meetings. Instead, reporting involves asking follow-up questions, pursuing documents, and being in touch with as many people as possible to learn more about what's happening in the community. Digging up information and providing context is what readers deserve. It gives them a better feel for how discussions impact them and what's coming in the future. Here are five examples of stories in 2022 involving government in Cedar Falls and Waverly that hopefully made a difference. Waverly Country Club. The courier received a tip. The city of Waverly had engaged with the Waverly Golf and Country Club about taking over its clubhouse property, and that his former general manager had filed a lawsuit after he was fired, alleging misconduct and defamation by members of the golf club's board. It's an instance where you receive a lot of no comments in response to inquiries but it only took one source with access to internal correspondence to offer more clarity about what had been discussed privately. C.F. Swearing In Cedar Falls is possibly the only big Iowa city not to hold a public swearing-in ceremony for elected officials. I believe anything major involving city government should be done in public. Elected officials and their hired professionals should be approachable before and after Public forums. When I learned that the City of Cedar Falls held its swearing in ceremonies for the newly elected Council and Mayor without public notice or invite, I was shocked and felt it was my duty to learn if this was an Iowa practice or a Cedar Falls preference. The story led to an explanation from the City Administrator and the Mayor writing to me that he would push to make it an in person event with more pomp and circumstance in the future. UNI properties face wrecking ball. In March, I reported on efforts to save two historic structures at the University of Northern Iowa from demolition. People care about historic structures. If the public is not informed until the 11th hour, that one is on the chopping block. It makes it more important for the reporter to get ahead of the process, as was the case in the story involving UNI's honors cottage and alumni house. People need to know what's happening. Sometimes it's valuable to post updates so officials understand an issue will not be forgotten. Free political peace. The Cedar Falls mayor's decision to remove his column from a city-funded news publication came with some explanation, but not the full picture. Reporting helped the readers understand how a former city councilman's complaint To the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board led to the removal of what the mayor called a free quarterly political piece. An explanation of the relationships between current and former government officials surrounding current events adds personality to a story. Cedar Falls Police Chief Personnel issues can be a touchy subject. News that Cedar Falls chief and a second city employee had been put on leave proved. Difficult to report on. Some people argue state laws give employees the right to have certain matters kept in confidence. However, when a top public safety official is placed on leave, I believe it's the responsibility of city leaders to notify the public and provide a general reason in order to avoid unsubstantiated rumors. In this case, it took a Freedom of Information Act request to obtain that basic information. Next, we have a story filed by Maria Cooper. Kramer's Sausage closing after 59 years. At La Porte City Locker, we did the old style. Dateline La Porte City. As a local sausage company closes its doors, packages of meat linger in almost empty coolers next to faded signs sporting German puns. Kramer's Sausage Company in La Porte City is closing after 59 years of providing the state with quality casings. Jost Kramer, the son of Heinz Kramer, who founded the business, said due to health reasons, he has decided to close. Kramer said many longtime staff had recently retired. The business, located at 322 Main Street, was set to close on October, but Jost said there were a few orders to fill, so they stayed open a bit longer. Then, people were asking about Thanksgiving and Christmas turkeys and hams, delaying the closing further. Then, Heinz Kramer died in November at the age of 88. Heinz worked with the meat and machines up until the age of 84. Jost said Heinz still came into the shop every day up until very recently. He would sit up front as a greeter and make tea and coffee for the workers. According to his obituary, Hines was born in Collinghorst, Germany. He apprenticed at the age of 14 to the local butcher and sausage maker, took trade classes as well. He left Germany in 1954 and went to Canada to become a sous-chef on a freighter ship for a year. After his voyage, he landed a job at a packing house in Winnipeg. In those three years, he learned more about the trade and perfected some of his own recipes while working there, one of those being Kramer's Sausage's famous fermented sausage. After meeting his wife, Hilde, the couple moved to Maryland, where Hines worked on another packing plant. The two moved to Waterloo after Jost was born. There, Hines got a job at John Deere, where he worked for 11 years. He started Kramer's Sausage in 1964. After working two jobs, he decided it was time to focus solely on his own company. The friends he made at John Deere helped him with electrical and mechanical components at his company. Heinz even built his own cooler after teaching himself about refrigeration. His obituary states that Heinz would always send his friends home with meat. Joyce said the recipes Heinz perfected while in Canada came with him from Germany. The family company also mixed their own seasonings and cures from raw ingredients. Quote, a lot of people buy a premix, so that's kind of a difference, Joyce said. We did the old style. Old style stuff all the time. Over time, some things changed in the meat industry. Joist said that about twenty five years ago, cheese was added to some products. He said his father was blown away by the idea. Quote, why would you put sausage and cheese? Never. Joist said, quoting his dad. Quote, you'd never do that in the old country, unquote. Jost said their two top items were their fermented summer sausage and smoke-cured beef. Kramer's Sausage Company could also be seen at the Iowa State Fair every year with its giant turkey legs. Another service the company provided was assisting hunters during deer season, which runs from October to January. Jost said people flocked from all over to the LaPorte City storefront, but since the announcement of their closing and other news coverage, meat has been flying off the shelves. Quote, Everybody wants this and one of that, Jost said. And I hate to disappoint people. So I said, Okay, I'll make you guys what has been ordered. And then I made the mistake of answering the phone, and then people wondered about hams and turkeys. Unquote. He said this year was his best-selling Christmas ever. He said he was lucky friends and former employees came back and helped him fill the orders. Quote, it's ridiculous, he said. There was a cooler the size of this room, full, just over a week ago, and now it's turned off. The last day to purchase anything from Kramer's Sausage is December 31st, but the supply is limited. In a Facebook post, Kramer's Sausage said it will not be selling recipes because they are like works of art made by Heinz. A memorial for Heinz will be held January 14th at the Veterans Memorial Hospital at 302 Cedar Street in LaPorte City. There will be a Masonic service at 3 o'clock p.m., followed by a celebration of life until 6 o'clock p.m. And now we turn the page to the Cedar Valley section and an article written by Courier Staff Mercy One Seeks Heroes Among Us, the 18th annual ceremony asking for nominations. Dateline is Waterloo. Celebrate those who have made an impact on our community at the 18th annual Heroes Among Us event. The Mercy One Waterloo and Cedar Falls Foundations are seeking nominations for Heroes Among Us, which recognizes people in our community who have gone above and beyond to ensure the well-being of others or shown great compassion and courage. Heroes can be from anywhere in northeast Iowa, with the Heroic Act occurring between January 1st, 2022 and December 31st, 2022. Nominations are due at 5 o'clock p.m. on January 13th. Nomination categories include Community Service, Environmental, Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan Youth, Medical Healthcare, Military, Public Safety, Workplace, Heroic Act in the Workplace. Submit nominations online at mercyone.org slash heroes or pick up a form at the Mercy One Foundation offices in Cedar Falls. Their address is 515 College Street or in Waterloo at 3421 West 9th Street. The Heroes Among Us nomination committee will select winners to be recognized at a breakfast on March 23rd at the Diamond Event Center in Cedar Falls. Questions can be directed to Diane Ferguson, Mercy One Cedar Falls and Waterloo Foundation's Fund Development and Special Events Coordinator. Her phone number is 319 268 3161. Over nearly two decades, Heroes Among Us has raised more than $400,000, which helps Mercy One provide high quality, personalized care. To donate, visit mercyone.org/slash heroes. Your support helps celebrate our Northeast Iowa neighbors who have done something special, extraordinary, to impact our community. Next, we have a story filed by Andy Malone, $43 million interchange planned between Waverly and Janesville. The Iowa Department of Transportation will construct a new interchange at the intersection of U.S. Highway 218 and 260th Street, between Janesville and Waverly. The off-ramps will lead to a new roundabout on the west side of the highway and another on the east side as part of the reconstruction. Construction is expected to get underway next fall with the estimated $43 million project set to be put out to bid in July. Lanes are expected to remain open throughout construction with completion slated for 2025. Pete Homstead, DOT Field Service Coordinator, said the reason for the reconstruction is to accommodate the increase in traffic from about 13,000 vehicles 25 years ago to 20,500 vehicles per day and make it a safer overall experience. He said the makeup of the interchange will be similar to the one further south on the stretch of highway where Iowa Highway 58 has exits leading to University Avenue in Cedar Falls. It would be the second spot in the area with roundabouts. The U.S. Highway 218-Janesville exit has two. The Maple Street, Edgebrook Drive, Cedar Drive, Island View Drive, Eagle Avenue, and 250th Street at grade access to U.S. Highway 218 will be permanently closed. A new frontage roadway will be constructed as part of the project to connect areas along the corridor to the new 260th Street Interchange. And now, since the Courier has quite a few obituaries in today's edition, we're going to start reading those now. Waterloo William J., known as Willie Coney Jr., 75 of Waterloo, died Thursday, December 22, 2022, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital. William was born on December 21, 1947, in Waterloo. He was the son of William Sr. and Catherine Montjoy Coney. He graduated from East High School in Waterloo. With the class of 1966, he went on to study at Hawkeye Institute of Technology. He was one of the first students to attend the tech school. After graduation, Willie worked at Seidler's, where they made concrete sewer pipes. He then worked for John Deere, starting in the foundry and retiring as a material handler on the assembly line after 33 years. He was proud that he earned the Emerald Ring. Willie enjoyed making furniture, a skill he learned in junior high. He continued the tradition of keeping a garden after his dad passed, growing many kinds of vegetables. He was a fun-loving and generous person who could talk to anyone. He enjoyed simple things like going to parades, pheasant hunting, fishing, swimming, and traveling. He was known for his good luck at the casino. When you heard the bells ringing, you knew where to find Willie. He loved cats and always kept them as pets. Willie loved the Lord and was a member of Antioch Baptist Church. Services for Willie will be at eleven thirty a m on saturday december thirty first at Lock Garden Gardenview Chapel, and there at thirty six fifty five Logan Avenue in Waterloo. Visitation is one hour prior to services at Loch Gardenview Chapel. Burial will be at Garden of Memory Cemetery. Visit www.LockFuneralServices.com for more information. Next is Elise Duval Treptow, and she was born on July 11, 1921, in Quincy, Florida, to the union of Ed Peters and Rebecca Walker. She left Quincy at an early age and resided in Missouri. Later, she moved to Waterloo, Iowa. On August 1, 1958, she married Albert H. Treptow. She and Albert had a farm. She worked as a cook in Rock Island, Illinois. Later, she owned Elise's Lounge in Waterloo and Elise Boutique Shop in Evansdale. Through the marriage of Rebecca Walker and Ward Nelson Sr., Elise and her brother John gained two sisters, Mary Magdalene and Ida May. Later, after the death of Rebecca Walker, Elise's stepfather married Mary Josephine Love. Through this union, Elise gained 15 more siblings. Elise loved her life, and she admitted to having many faults. One request during her illness was to let everyone she ever mistreated know she apologized, and she asked them to forgive her. Over the next year, her faith in God grew stronger and stronger, and she learned to rest in his forgiveness of her. She entered into eternal rest on December eighteenth, 2022. Homegoing service for Elise will be held at Lockett Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue in Waterloo, on January sixth, 2023. Visitation at 10 o'clock a.m. and a service at 11 o'clock. Acknowledgements may be left at www. Next, in Waterloo, Richard W. Wolfe, 80, of Waterloo, died Tuesday, December 27, 2022, after a short battle with ampullary metastatic cancer. He was born March 21, 1942, in Waterloo, the son of Warren E. and Lila R. Tropster-Wolf. Dick graduated from Waterloo West High School In 1960. He married Sharon E. Bates on March 23, 1963, in Bethany, Missouri. She preceded him in 2018. He first worked for his parents' business, Wolf Den Market. Richard then worked for 42 years at Waterloo Courier and Cedar Falls Record in classified and displayed advertising until his retirement. He later worked for Rochester Armored Car as a driver. Richard was a member of the Masonic Temple, J.C.'s Chevalier's Drum and Bugle Corps, First Baptist Church in Waterloo, and Walnut Ridge Baptist Church. He loved going to Glacier National Park. He and Sharon visited there many times. Richard enjoyed playing the drums in his band. He had a love for Corvettes, collecting arrowheads, Western art, and his coin club. He also loved Iowa Hawkeyes, St. Louis Cardinals, Green Bay Packers, and the Indianapolis Colts. Visitation for Richard will be from four o'clock p.m. to six o'clock p.m., Wednesday, January fourth, twenty twenty-three, at Locke at Tower Park, forty-one forty Kimball Avenue in Waterloo. Memorials may be directed to the family. Locke at Tower Park has a phone number of three one nine two three 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 one four six. And they are assisting the family. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. And now, listeners, at this time we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December thirtieth on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's continue reading the obituaries from the Courier. The next obituary has a dateline of St. Robert. John V. Stalker, 84, of St. Robert, Missouri, formerly of Waterloo-Cedar Falls, Iowa, passed away peacefully in Mercy Hospital, Springfield, Missouri, from complications of a stroke. He was the son of Arthur and Fern Sailor Stocker Coonrad, and was born and raised in Waterloo. He attended school in Waterloo K-12 and graduated from West High School in 1956. He married Betty Tuttle on November 26, 1961, to whom two daughters were born. A celebration of life service is pending in St. Robert's, Missouri, with burial in the spring of 2023 in the Garden of Memories in Waterloo. Next, Pauline Van Mill, 91, died Tuesday, December 27, 2022, at Arlington Place in Grundy Center, Iowa. She was born December 31, 1930, in Hardin County, Iowa, the daughter of J. N. Brenna Strickfort, De Nui. Pauline attended school in Hardin County and later at the Black Hawk Country School. She accepted Christ as her personal Savior on August 20, 1947, at the age of 16, through Isaiah 53, verse 6. Pauline married Richard Van Mill on March 25, 1949, in Cedar Falls, Iowa. She and Richard farmed together for over 50 years. They were happy in fellowship with the Christians at Stout Gospel Hall. He preceded her in death on September 16, 2018. Services for Pauline will be at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 2, 2023 at the Stout Gospel Hall with burial at Oak Hill Cemetery in Parkersburg, Iowa. Visitation will be 2 to 5 o'clock p.m. Sunday at Dahl Van Hoof Shoof Funeral Home in Cedar Falls and for one hour prior to the service at Gospel Hall. You may contact www.dahlfuneralhome.com for more information. Next is Janet Dubois, and she was born in Cedar Falls, Iowa, in 1935. There was a piano in the house, and at a very early age, she started to play. She later also learned to play the clarinet and played in the high school and Cedar Falls Municipal Band. Janet graduated from Iowa State Teachers College with a degree in music, and started her love of travel by taking her first trip to Chicago. There, she worked her way through Northwestern University earning her master's in music. Upon graduation, Janice accepted a position at a small college in South Carolina. Once again, she packed her bags and traveled to Gaffney, South Carolina. She began her teaching career at Limestone College, where she taught for 20 years. She later accepted a job in the Low Country. Once again, she packed her bags and traveled to Walterboro, South Carolina where she started teaching music at USC Salkanachi. Janet remained at Salk for 20 years, only retiring because of her failing health. As a very talented musician, she enjoyed sharing her gift whenever she could. She faithfully played for many services at First Baptist Church, St. Jude's Episcopal Church, and Bethel Presbyterian Church, all in Waterloo. As well as many other places. Janet was an avid traveler, crossing the continents extensively in Europe, Asia, Africa, Central, and South America. She spent New Year's Eve on the Nile, and with the help of a sturdy cane, she climbed the Inca bricks of Machu Picchu. When she came home from traveling, she found her home protected by a thin layer of kitty hair. Yes, she had cats three, six, or sometimes nine. They were her children, and she loved them dearly. When exploring became too difficult, she began cruise travel, and you could often find her sitting in the lounge with an Irish coffee and a good gory mystery or a bag of yarn knitting and making friends. Janet could never see a dog, whether on a leash or a scruffy stray, without stopping to pet it. In lieu of flowers. Her family would request a donation in Janet's name to FOCCAS Friends of the Colinton Tree County Animal Shelter 33 Poor Farm Road Walterboro South Carolina 29488 A memorial service will be held at a later date in Walterboro and also in Iowa where she will be interred with her parents arrangements are being made with the Bryce W. Herndon and Sons Funeral Homes and Crematory in Walterboro Chapel, 1193 Bells Highway, Walterboro. Visit the guest book online at www.briceherndonfuneralhome.com. Next is Jim David Acklin, who was born in Newton, Iowa, on February 26, 1939, to Lloyd, Budd, and Dorothy, maiden name, Ridgway Acklin. He passed away on December twenty-fifth, 2022. As a young man, Jim proudly served his country in the U.S. Navy, stationed in the Pacific. He worked at John Deere, first in the foundry, and ending in the Northeast site, retiring in 1993. But his life's true calling was playing Santa Claus. He brought joy to generations of children playing Santa at College Square Mall for 23 years. A self-taught guitarist, Jim performed all over northeastern Iowa with his bands, Satisfaction and Shine. He loved entertaining people with his music and stories and would take any opportunity to tell you about his family, whom he loved immensely and was endlessly proud of. He held a deep appreciation and love of life and strong faith in God. A viewing for Jim will be held by Parrott & Wood Funeral Home on Wednesday, January 4th, between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. The funeral service will be held on Thursday, January 5th, at 11 a.m. at the same location. Next, in Ackley, Darlene Richmeyer, 92, of Ackley, passed away on Tuesday, December 27, 2022, at Grand Givante in Ackley, Funeral services will be 10:30 a.m. on Saturday, December 31st, 2022 at St. John's UCC in Ackley with burial in Oakwood Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Friday at the Sitzma Funeral Home in Ackley. In lieu of flowers memorials may be given to the St. John's UCC in Ackley or to a charity of your choice. Darlene F. Reitzmeyer was born May 1, 1930, in Butler County, rural Ackley, the only child of Frank and Verna Andrews. She grew up on the farm where she was born, attended school in Ackley, and graduated from Ackley High School in 1948. While in high school, she played the bass drum and was active in publishing the yearbook and the school newspaper. After graduation. She worked for two years at the Ackley Creamery. Darlene married John K. Ritzmeyer on August 6, 1950, at St. John's United Church of Christ in Ackley, Iowa. They moved to her home farm in March of 1951, where she was a farm wife and homemaker. She and John spent their married life on the farm, raising their four children. Sadly, John passed in 2004. She continued to live on the farm she loved until January 2019 when she moved to Grand Givante in Ackley. Darlene was a lifelong member of St. John's United Church of Christ, where she served as Sunday school teacher and superintendent and a member of the Sunshine Circle. She also served on the Ackley Geneva School PTA Band Mothers Group and was a hospice volunteer for over 20 years. In later years, she enjoyed visits from her great-grandchildren and watching Hallmark movies. And here the Courier lists four death notices, and they are Kimberline K. Endelman, 61, of Shell Rock. She died Tuesday, December 27, 2022, at the Shell Rock Health Center. Arrangements are with Kaiser Corson Funeral Homes and Grossy Mighty Grow Heart, 85, of Waterloo, died Monday, December 26, 2022, at Martin Health Center of Western Home Communities in Cedar Falls. Arrangements are being made with Locke Funeral Services. Paul Andrew Upa, 85, of Marshalltown, formerly of Tama, died Tuesday, December twenty seventh, 2022, at Iowa River Hospice Home in Marshalltown. Arrangements are with the Cruz Phillips Funeral Home in Tama, Toledo. And lastly, Doris Helen Zangerley, 88, of Waterloo, died Wednesday, December twenty eighth, 2022, at Mercy One, Waterloo. Arrangements for Doris are being made with Parrot and Woodchapel of memories. That's all of the obituaries in today's paper. Let's turn now to the opinion section. This editorial first appeared in the Storm Lake Times pilot, written by Art Cullen, attracting young people to rural Iowa. All our friends say they're having a hard time finding people to fill good jobs. Mike Franken said it was one of the first things he heard while campaigning for the Senate last fall. It is a common lament in Iowa community newspaper circles. Small towns have an increasingly difficult time recruiting young people. We've been looking for a reporter for some time. It is difficult convincing someone to move to northwest Iowa when you are competing with Des Moines or the Twin Cities or someplace west. Storm Lake proves a tough sell, even with a college, lake, and diverse population. It's tougher yet in Cherokee. It's not just us. We heard it all over the state. It's not necessarily about the pay or the benefits. A journalism grad we spoke with would rather wait tables for tips in the suburbs than move here for a living wage with health insurance. Others, recently laid off at regional newspapers, would rather take their chances on unemployment than take a job covering county fairs and rodeos. The problem is widespread. We were speaking with Liz Garst of Coon Rapids about how there is an apparent anemone for rural places. The Garst family endowed White Rock Conservancy, a fantastic nature spread along the Raccoon River, which has been very successful and is looking for an executive director. She hasn't been able to convince great candidates who interview, to move to a small town even for a dream job. We understand that it's always been tough to keep them down on the farm. It gets tougher as the realities and perceptions of rural places drive young people away. The reality? You can't ride your bike around the lake without risking getting flattened by a livestock truck. The perception? I can have a higher quality of life biking around Gray's Lake in Des Moines safely or the reality, Northwest Iowa has supported anti-immigrant policies for at least the past quarter century. The perception, why would I want to live there when I have choices? When we suggested in the New York Times that Iowa caucuses actually provide a venue for minority candidates, the blowback was vigorous, with a strong hint that we were racist hicks. The perception in urban places of Iowa as a backwater, becomes our reality. We then tell it to ourselves and our children until we almost believe it. The story we tell ourselves is important. That's one reason we call ours the city beautiful. It is our frame of reference. It is beautiful. It's a wonderful place to live. There really is lots to do if you give it a chance and you don't mind the drive. You can build something here, honestly, no matter your race or creed. That's true of Storm Lake. It's important for us to think that way and project it. We have quite a marketing job to do, and we're not doing well enough at it. We also have to acknowledge that rural Iowa can be insular and exclusionary. Senator Chuck Grassley summed it up in his final campaign ads that proved so effective Quote, Just leave us alone, the ad closed. That thinking is what sticks Iowa in the mud. It is the way we think. We help earn our reputation. Young people want clean air and water and take a different view than their grandparents of how to approach the land. The prevailing attitude in this region is that if a million hogs are good, another million must be better, no matter how bad it reeks. Young people are voting with their feet while holding their noses. If you could build a more diverse food system that valued people and communities, perhaps people would value rural life. Iowa is not really putting its shoulder into it because our state leadership is beholden to interests whose main concern is exploiting rural resources and people have no leverage. You gain leverage through education. Every successful rural town has at least a community college or a small four-year institution like Buena Vista University or Luther or Wartburg or Central, or Northwestern. More than two-thirds of those graduates remain in Iowa, and many of those in small towns. They are our professionals and business creators. The state continues to disinvest in higher education generally. Many private colleges are fighting for survival, Buena Vista being among the more adept and fortunate. One of the most direct ways to firm up rural Iowa is to drive students to these colleges through incentives that have been starved for generations, like the Iowa tuition grant. Instead, Governor Reynolds is chasing vouchers for private K-12 schools, which will only subtract from rural education in our zero-sum game. We could grow our own talent if they didn't have so much debt they have to flee. If we had the greatest pre-K-12 schools in the world, if college debt weren't a barrier, if we embraced immigrants if we reoriented, agriculture toward healthy food, and communities, and if you could build a bike trail around Storm Lake and revive the community concert series, you no doubt will have a better shot at revitalizing rural Iowa. Until then, the familiar exodus of talent that would prefer to stay closer to home will continue. We hope they can visit again at Christmas. Our next opinion comes from Paul Krugman, of the New York Times, learning from the Southwest Airlines fiasco. Americans are furious with Southwest Airlines, and understandably so. Severe weather always disrupts air travel, but Southwest was the only major airline to suffer a near-complete collapse of service in the wake of the recent megastorm, stranding thousands of passengers as of Thursday, as other carriers were more or less back to normal. Southwest was still operating fewer than half of its scheduled flights. How did this happen? To be honest, I'd love to write a scathing, muckraking column about the destructive effects of corporate greed. But that doesn't seem to be the main story here. To be clear, greed surely played some role in the disaster. Most obviously, Southwest hasn't spent the money needed to upgrade a scheduling system many people inside the airline knew was inadequate. Instead, before the pandemic, it spent billions on stock buybacks. Let me also add that nothing I say here should be taken as an argument against demanding that Southwest compensate the travelers it failed, not just as a matter of fairness, but to create the right incentives. If we want companies that serve the public to spend money to reduce the risks of catastrophic failure, We need to ensure that they pay a high price when they let their customers down. Yet, righteous anger shouldn't stop us from trying to understand why, exactly, things went so wrong. The roots of Southwest's unique meltdown go back all the way to 1978, when the airline industry was deregulated. Until then, interstate carriers were basically forced to offer direct, quote, point-to-point service between cities. After deregulation, most major airlines shifted to hub-and-spoke systems, which had many passengers changing planes at major centers like Chicago's O'Hare or Atlanta. Hub-and-spoke has some clear advantages over point-to-point. It lets airlines service the same number of cities with fewer routes. Connecting 10 cities point-to-point requires 45 routes but sending everyone via a central hub requires only nine. The system also creates some inherent flexibility because planes and flight crews based at hubs can be reallocated to compensate for, say, equipment breakdowns. But a hub-and-spoke system has disadvantages too. It can force passengers to accept long layovers or, alternatively, miss tight connections if anything goes wrong. Dear American Airlines, no, I did not appreciate my recent involuntary night in Miami. Hub and Spoke has also enhanced airlines' monopoly power, with each big carrier dominating markets served by its hubs. In response to these disadvantages, on the eve of the pandemic, some airlines were moving partly back to -to point-to-point. Southwest, however, had never left that system. Alone among major carriers, It mostly flew people straight from origin to destination, without the need to change planes along the way. Partly as a result, Southwest had relatively low costs, some of which were passed on in the form of cheaper fares. Patrons generally liked its service. In 2022, Southwest's economy class, it doesn't offer business class, led J.D. Power's ranking for customer satisfaction but point-to-point turns out to be especially vulnerable to extreme disruptions. Snow and bitter cold eventually left most of Southwest's planes and personnel stranded in scattered locations, unable to resume normal service, even when the weather let up. Again, as I write this, the airline is still trying to put the pieces back together. Antiquated technology that left Southwest unable to even find many of its crew members, plus the absence of agreements that would have made it possible to rebook passengers on other airlines, made it worse. But those were only exacerbating factors. Basically, a system that has some real advantages in normal times fell apart when it encountered, well, a perfect storm. Are there any broader lessons from this disaster? Some analysts have suggested that Southwest debacle reflected a widespread managerial culture that encourages cheese-sparing, increasing profits by slicing off costs until there's no margin for error. For example, a relentless focus on holding down expenses was at the root of worker anger that almost shut down America's freight railways not long ago. I'm sympathetic to that view. We'd probably all be better off if corporations were less focused on their short term bottom lines, and more willing to invest in resilience, and public policy should do what it can to promote such investment. Beyond that, what happened at Southwest is another reminder that, for all we talk of an information age, we're still living in a material world. Notably, there's a clear family resemblance between the Southwest meltdown and the supply chain crisis of 2021 22 when a constellation of unusual events left many of the shipping containers, central to modern commerce, stranded in the wrong places. If you're an affluent American, it can sometimes seem as if you're already living in the metaverse. Click on your mouse, and whatever you need arrives at your door. But there's a lot of physical action and real-world labor going on behind the scenes, and we forget that reality at our peril. Now we have one more short one from Art Cullen at the Storm Lake Times pilot. Use the 14th Amendment. Few among us are convinced that Donald Trump will ever get booked, much less jailed, for his crime of insurrection against democracy. A couple of constitutional law professors floated an interesting idea in the Washington Post this week. Use the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause, which bars such traitors from serving in public office. You avoid criminal prosecution, which has its legal and political problems. And Trump has been astonishingly successful in dragging things out so long that justice forgets the offense. Congress can initiate an action under the 14th Amendment, as it did against Confederate leader Jefferson Davis, to bar Trump from office. Congress has concluded that Trump fostered the insurrection on January 6th, 2021. The 14th Amendment should be invoked post haste to protect the Republic against a threat as severe as Davis was. It does not preclude anything except Trump imposing his cancer on our politics. Now let's return to Iowa news from the Courier. This story was filed by Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Iowa medical marijuana program grows in 2022. Dateline, Des Moines. Iowa's medical marijuana program saw growth in 2022, both in increased patients and rising sales at the state's licensed dispensaries. As of November 2022, the number of card holders in Iowa's program was 14,466, close to double the 7,865 enrolled patients in December of 2021 according to a report from the Iowa Medical Cannabinoid Board, which administers the program. More healthcare care providers are also certifying patients for the program. As of November, 1,920 practitioners had certified a patient at least once, compared to 1,603, in December of 2021. Lucas Nelson, the president of Bud and Marys, said the growth in patients shows an increased need for access in the state, both in the number of dispensaries and the types of products available. Bud and Mary's, previously known as Medfarm, is one of two licensed marijuana manufacturers in Iowa and operates dispensaries in Windsor Heights and Sioux City. it demonstrates that there is a need for these products in the state, and there is a need for more access for people, he said. Sales grow. Sales at the state's five dispensaries in the last year were $10.2 million compared with $6.1 million in 2021. August 2022 was the first month in the program's history to bring in more than $1 million in sales. Nelson said Bud and Mary's Sioux City location sees about 50 transactions a day, while the Windsor Heights location handles around 300 transactions a day. A second company, Iowa Cannabis Company, operates dispensaries in Council Bluffs, Waterloo, and Iowa City. The Iowa Cannabis Company received a license from the state to begin producing marijuana for the program in 2021 in Cedar Rapids before relocating to Iowa City. The timeline for that facility to be operational is May 2023 according to the report. When it comes to taxes, the board recommended exempting medical marijuana products from sales tax to ease the cost burden on patients. It also advocated a tax tweak that would allow cannabis companies to take business expense deductions for state income taxes. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, December 30th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.